0: It is a good morning. If you're new here this morning, visiting, maybe invited by a friend or a coworker, we want to welcome you, let you know that you are most welcome here. We're glad that you've uh, chosen to worship with us here this morning, and it is our prayer that you would be refreshed and know more of what it means to be a follower of Christ. My name is Brett, and I'm one of the elders here at Veritas Church. If we haven't met, please make a point to say hello on your way out, or at least introduce yourself to the person. Seated next to you, we'd be glad to get to know you. As we read just a moment ago, we will be in Psalm 2 this morning, so if you haven't already, please take your copy of God's Word, and let's turn to Psalm chapter 2, as we'll be considering this portion of text. By way of reminder, we are going to begin the Gospel of Mark in August, but we are taking the month of July to consider uh, the first five psalms together. Would you pray with me? Let's ask... The Lord for His aid and His help as we consider His word. A great God and Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ, the righteous One who has defeated death and who rules ascended and reigning upon His throne. We come to you in His name, who is the perfect mediator, the one who gives to us what we cannot achieve for ourselves, the one, who conquers the very enemy that we would have no hope of standing against. We come, Father, in response to this great news, this great declaration that you have triumphed and that you have set your son, your king, on your holy hill and that he reigns this morning. Lord, we ask for the aid of your spirit, recognizing full well as we have sung and prayed this morning that within our hearts there remains either the dominion of sin or the remaining residue of sin that prevents us and keeps us and tempts us from turning away from this good news of hearing of the reigning Jesus. We ask that you would cause by your spirit, Lord, to come this morning and to renew our minds, to turn our wills and our affections towards your Son, that we might hear and receive of all that he is, that our lives might be ordered according to your, your good law, your righteous rule. And that, Father, you might continue to call out your people, redeem your elect, strengthen your church, equip her, and send her forth, we pray in Christ's name, amen. amen. Who said, and by what authority? That's probably a question that's been asked countless times from schoolyard arguments, from Neighborhood association meetings, if you've ever had the joy in being one of those, or geopolitical conflicts. This issue right here, this issue of authority, and any sort of rightful claim of dominion is inescapable. This question, who said, and by what authority, is one of the most important questions that the scriptures answer, definitively. Who has authority over your life? Who has authority over your life, and what gives anyone the right to exercise authority over you? Have you thought along those lines? Well, what about when this claim for authority comes from God himself? And thinking upon that, you then might come to the next Logical question, well, is it just Christians? Are Christians the only ones that belong to God? And the rest of the world are essentially free agents. They've bowed the knee. They believe in this God. But what about the rest of the world that does not? Does God still have rightful authority over them? What Psalm 2 announces is that every man, every woman, every king, every ruler belong to God. The nations are the heritage and the possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your neighbor, this city, this country, your very life belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. You exist to worship Christ. But clearly... In saying that, this message is not a message that's welcomed by everyone, nor gladly received and cheered and triumphed. Perhaps even hearing that, you might bristle a bit this morning to hear the thought that you are a possession, the possession of Christ. So what do we do? How do we reconcile a world that aims to do as it desires with a God who claims dominion? How do those seemingly irreconcilable realities coexist? Well, Psalm 2 recognizes this tension, and it serves as this continued introduction to the entire Psalter. If you were here last week, you remember Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are this, in a sense, united introduction to everything that comes forth, not only in the Psalter, unpacking the themes and emphases that are there, but really the entire narrative of Scripture If you want to make sense of so much of the book of Psalms and the overarching aim of Scripture, then you must deal with this issue of Christ's rule. Here's the big idea for this morning. Everyone wants to rule their world, but Christ must be your ruler. If you walk away and hear nothing else but that, That is the emphasis of Psalm 2. Everybody wants to rule their world, but Christ must be your ruler. Look how this is laid out within the psalm. Psalm chapter 2. We're told, first of all, of the rage of the nations. The rage of the nations. Look back at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. At its outset, it's worth remembering that Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted Psalms in all of the New Testament. Acts chapter 4 includes this longest reference to Psalm 2, as it's taken up as a prayer by the disciples of Jesus upon Peter and John being released from the Sanhedrin. The saints gather together, and what they pray in unison is Psalm 2, ascribing the rebellious ruling of the Jewish leaders alongside Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel against Jesus. Why do the nations rage? It shows up there in Acts 4. We also find reference to Psalm 2 in Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 5, both times applying the Psalms to Jesus and his supremacy above angels and above the Levitical priesthood. And then if you come to the book of Revelation, you find numerous allusions and references to Psalm chapter 2. In Revelation 1:5, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. In Revelation 2:27, we're told that he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces. And then in chapter 12, verse 5, it says, "Christ is the one who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron." Clearly, the scriptures would teach us that if we would know anything about Psalm 2, is that this chapter is about the rule of Christ. So, who is it then that stands in opposition? Who is it that the psalmist is speaking of? Notice how the psalm opens. It's a a rhetorical question. It's the sort of question you ask really not to garner an answer, but because you know the answer is so obvious, you use that as a position to make a point. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? And this is not just some disorganized grassroots kind of skirmish out in the middle of nowhere that the people are rising up. Because along with the nations and the peoples, we're told kings and rulers are all in agreement, working together against this reign. Now you remember... You may remember the exhortation of the Apostle John. In his teachings and his writings, he would often write of the world and speak of the world in opposition or in contrast to all that is of the Father. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, he says, For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is of this world. What he's describing is what's here in Psalm 2, the very ambition and mindset that is unified in opposition to the Father. Why do these nations rage? Now the psalmist would have us see the world we live in, the world that you work in, the world that you go to school in, that you shop in, that you vote in that you will live and die in, the world that we live in, is not neutral. It is not neutral. The nations of the earth are united in one enduring mission of resistance. And what exactly are they fighting against? Well, notice that at the end of verse 2 and then in verse 3, The psalmist identifies the very aim of this opposition of the world. They are against the Lord and his anointed. Your Bible may have a footnote here or maybe a study guide help that calls out the significance of this word anointed. Maybe it's even capitalized in your copy of God's word. For it is the word Messiah or Christ. They are in opposition against the Lord and his Messiah. The nation's rage, the people of the earth are plotting, literally meditating, the same word in chapter 1, they are meditating on ways to strategically rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ. That is who they are fighting against. Now, in all honesty... You've probably never seen a news clip of our national leaders declaring war on God. You've probably never heard a world leader get behind a podium and declare his outright hatred for Jesus and announce that he has just released funding to rid him from the earth. So you might read this and think this is a bit strange, this is a bit melodramatic. But how has God made himself known to us? By what means has he broken into our world and declared himself to be the creator, sustainer, ruler, and judge of all the earth? By revelation. Or, if you please, by the word of his mouth. God makes himself known by his word, he speaks. He sends prophets. He declares his will. He has even sent his son, the fullest expression of who he is. He has made himself known. And this same word, this same law or instruction that the blessed man of chapter 1-2 is meditating upon is the way by which God has made himself known to this world. Opposition to the will of God, made known in the word of God, is the front line of this battle. You may never hear a senator or a president say, I reject Christ and all his rule. But the focus of opposition within our world is hotly against the law of God, the authority of God laid out in scripture. What do you think is behind all of the opposition to what we would know and call the worship of God. With one voice, the nations rise up and say, we will order our lives as we please and do everything that we can to enact legislation, to direct movies, to write books, to tell stories, to tear down and throw off The revelation of God. Or if you please, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. What the psalmist is saying is that humanity is staunchly and uniformly against the will of God for us. The rule of the Lord and his anointed is seen as bondage. And cords and ropes that must be thrown off in order to live as we want to live. That is the human condition. Yes, the nations rage, the peoples of the earth live to plot against the rule of Christ. It may not be on the banner, but that's the fine print of what is happening in our world. I bring all of this up for one really important reason you will not be able to make sense of the world that you live in or of your own life apart from this reality. For what we have in the first three verses of Psalm chapter 2 is a description of the outright hatred of natural man against the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you've even wondered or, or said out loud in this past week, why is the world the way it is? As you scroll through your newsfeed or listen to the radio, assassinations, mass shootings, civil wars, corruption, you might even find yourself saying, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Something is terribly wrong with us. And that is precisely the same conclusion of the scriptures. All of this exists because of humanity's aim to throw off the rule of god the nations rage but it moves on not only from the rage of the nations it then moves into verses 4 through 6 and what we see here is the wrath of the father the rage of the nations moves to the wrath of the father look at verse 4 he who sits in the heavens laughs the lord holds them in derision then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. How well do you do with rejection? What if you heard that people that you know wanted nothing to do with you, so much so that they were holding secret meetings regularly to find about ways to get rid of you. That kind of rejection. Are we meant to read, then, the reaction of God in verses 4 through 6 in that way? Of some sort of offended junior high kid who can't stand the fact that people don't like him? Is that why God is angry? Well, only if God has the same glory, the same authority, and the same dominion of some junior high student. Thankfully, he does not. If we want to rightly understand the reaction of God against the raging of the nations, we must first remember who he is to understand this response. Who is God? The most simple thing we can say is that he's not a man. That means he doesn't think like you or I. He he doesn't respond or live or speak as a human being. He is the eternal one. He is self-existent. He needs no one. He is dependent upon nothing and no one. Added to that, we know he is holy. That means he's without sin. He's without blemish. Whatever he does, or however he speaks, or whatever he decrees, it's always done in perfect goodness and perfect righteousness and perfect justice. That means whatever God says here or elsewhere is always done in perfect righteousness and without any inconsistency, for he's holy. We also know that he's creator. We do not exist alongside of him in some sort of co-equal realm where he's just a better version of us. We are the creatures. He is the creator. We were created by him, by his power and perfect authority. That means then that we exist for the reasons he says we exist. As his creature, your life is meant to be ordered in such a way that it's a reflection of his character. Do you understand that? So then, when his creatures rise up and rebel and say, let us throw off this rule, when the nations rage, seek to throw off the bonds of this seeming restraint of this God, it is nothing less than cosmic treason, as it has been said so well. It is cosmic treason against the eternally holy creator God. He looks upon this rebellion, and the psalmist says he laughs. He laughs. Not an acute, look how silly they are, kind of laugh. Because the parallel clauses in verses 4 and 5, what do they speak of? They speak of derision, of wrath. And fury. The response of the Father against this rebellion is nothing less than righteous fury. This is the wrath of God against the rebellion of humanity. And what does verse 6 tell us of how God specifically responds to this rebellion? This is not a clause just thrown in there, it is inconsistent with what is being said. His righteous fury, his response to this. He says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Or if you like, I see your rebellion and I would point you to my king. This king, we're told, sits on Zion, the mountain of God. Zion is a hill just north of the Davidic city of Jerusalem. It's important, not really because of its size, but because of its location Because there the temple dwells, the temple, the place where God dwells with man, the place where God has made a way for man to dwell with God. And in this temple, at this hill, he says, my king sits there. The temple is the place where God dwells among his people, and this temple has a throne, and upon this throne sits God's king. Whoever this king is, we must see him, don't miss this, to be the response to the raging of the nations. Whoever this king is, he stands as the authority and the ultimate judge against the plotting and raging nations. Which leads us directly to verse 7. The rage of the nations, the wrath of the Father. Thirdly, the rule of the Son. The rule of the Son. Verse 7. Look how this continues to progress. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. As we read our Bibles, we find that God said to Abraham back in Genesis that through the line of Israel, through his seed and through David specifically, there would come an eternal and a universal kingdom. That would be ruled in steadfast love, covenant love, and it would endure forever. And there would be this anointed one who would come, and he would be the one to establish this eternally righteous kingdom. David knew this because he says in verse 7 that he would tell of the decree, he would speak of what the Lord had told him or given to him. And what was that? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. But when did the Lord ever speak that to David? Well, through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7. For through Nathan, God speaks and says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But as we read Psalm 2 along Acts 4 and Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 5, we discover that this promise, it's not just simply given to David, but to David's greater son, David the prophet, speaking in one context, but speaking ultimately of the overarching ark of redemption where God would send his eternal one to rule in this righteous kingdom that would be without end. The Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, is the king who sits on the throne. Now, this is very rich language here to speak of sonship and the inheritance of nations and having a heritage. In many contexts, this is adoption language. This is sonship language associated with covenants in which a Lord would reward a faithful subject or his son by Elevating him to this special status as the firstborn. And like a son, the faithful subject would then receive an inheritance. He would receive a heritage. It was an unconditional gift that would be his for all of time. And such gifts usually took the form of land or some enduring dynasty. And what do we read of in verse 8? The father... Making the nations the heritage of the Son, the ends of the earth being His possession. Do you remember when I said this morning that you exist to be the possession of the Lord Jesus Christ? This is why. The Father has given the nations to the Son as the rightful King who sits upon the throne. Make no mistake, friends, Christ is King. And this world, it belongs to him. The nations are rightfully under his rule because all of it, it belongs to him. And in his rightful reign, what will he do with the rebellious opposition that continually seeks to throw off his rule? Remember, this is the father's response. I have set my king upon my holy hill. And what is Christ doing in this rule? What are we promised? Look at verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. If you want to know, and if you were wondering how rage and rebellion will fare against this king, here is our object lesson Clay pot meets iron scepter. Every rebellious subject will be dashed to pieces. That's what the scriptures proclaim. The rebellion is futile because this king will reign in justice. Now, please be careful here. Don't do a mental switch. Don't make the mistake of thinking this announcement is just bad news for the other guy, ultimately inconsequential to me. Let me ask you, what is your response to the authority of God over your life. You might say, well, how guilty am I really? I've never plotted and conspired to kill God. He can do his thing as long as I do my thing. It'll all work out in the end. But let me remind you who you are. And let me remind you what you were created for. To not honor God with your life, as we said, is treasonous. The highest treason that you could ever commit against the most holy God there is. To scoff at his law, thinking that it doesn't apply to you, or to justify it, or to explain it away, that, friends, that is transgression of the highest order. And any failure, then, to order your life Your very thoughts, your secret desires, to fail to order them in line with Scripture is a treasonous revolt against this king. You see, we are born into this nation, not the American nation, but the raging nation, as citizens, by natural birth. By who you are, being born as a fallen human being, You and I, in our natural state, seek to usurp Christ's authority and to rule our lives for ourselves. By birth, we belong to the nation spoken of in verse 2. We are not some innocent victims caught up in a mob's fury against the Lord, and we didn't know how we got here. This is our home state, this is our mother tongue, this is our chief desire, apart from God's grace. And let me ask you, how well are we doing as a humanity that seeks to rule ourselves by ourselves? Just in plain language, look around, survey just a little bit of world history. How well do we do as nations who just seek to rule ourselves? Think back over the course of history. Consider kings and presidents, nations, and empires. Every nation, every kingdom, every house, is plagued with murder, rape, with slander, with corruption, with war, bribery, deceit, all kinds of defilement. We don't do well ruling ourselves. But think also just about your own life personally. How well are you doing when you seek to rule yourself? Christian, think upon your own testimony as a reflection as far as how miserable and how self serving your life was before Christ. Can you see a difference in what it means to profess Christ as to when you did not? Think back to the moments in those seasons where you sought to be king of your life and to rule yourself. The entire Christian message is that we were not made to be independent. We were not created for self-rule. And not just from some pragmatic sense of like, it just doesn't go well for us when we don't order our lives according to God's way. From a functional and moral sense, it does not go well. For we have been made, we've been created to bow the knee to King Jesus and to refuse to do so is sin. In fact, this very tension, this urgency that you most likely are feeling right now is felt within the unfolding of this psalm the raging of the nations, to hear of the wrath of the Father, to hear of the rule of Christ, it leads then in verse 10 to a plea. What I would say is the plea of the church. The plea of the church. Look back at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you hear the plea? Do you hear the plea and the cry of the psalmist there? He looks out upon these warring nations, the same people that provoked him to ask the question, why do you rage against the Lord? Why do you fight against Christ? closing refrain of Psalm 2 is a call to repentance it's a call to be wise it's a call to be warned it's a plea to throw down your weapons to serve the Lord in fear for he is your king and the father has committed all judgment to the son go read John 5 and this son that he is set upon his throne he will rule the nations with the rod of iron and the church says any rebellion against him any attempt to throw off this rule any attempt to scoff at his law will be met by swift and ultimate judgment because the truth of the matter is this Cosmic treason, it demands punishment. The unholy insurrection is promised to be met by the wrath and the fury of God. We are guilty. But even in our guilt, the psalm declares there is hope. The plea of verse 10 and 12 is what I'm calling the plea of the church. Because it is the great missionary challenge given to God's people. For having received mercy, we now testify of this same mercy. We seek to evangelize the nations. We seek to announce because it is our assignment given to us to carry this message of God's decree to every language, every tribe, every people. Friend, if you're here this morning and you have yet to put your trust in Christ, we plead with you. We warn you, be wise. We say these verses are are the plea of the church because we exist as an outpost of this kingdom of heaven. And we have been commissioned as God's people to testify, to announce who this king is, what he decrees, and ultimately what he has done. What we announce and what we testify is that Christ most certainly will judge all sin and all evil. But he will have mercy on all who come to him. And so that's why we say with the psalmist, kiss the son, embrace him, bow to him. And as verse 12 says, flee to him in refuge. This is why the wonder of God's grace and the great drama of salvation is so wonderfully moving. Because the Bible is very clear and it clearly places every man and every woman as a natural citizen among the rebellious nations. But the scriptures also proclaim that this king that testifies of all of this, not only is he a king of justice, but he is also a king of mercy. Do you know anything of the great comfort and assurance of having the Son of God as a refuge that you can flee to? Do you know that by experience? As we hear of our great offense and we recognize that we've been plotting against the King of Kings, we hear that we can flee to Christ and find refuge in him. Because as we come to him, we are promised that he, he receives us. He becomes our refuge as he sacrificed his own life for our guilt, the guilt of his own people. The gospel announces is that the Father actually turned his back on the son in order to accomplish this. Or if you like, the son was left without a refuge so that he might be a refuge for his people. He takes the stain of sin, and he washes it from his own citizens by the cleansing power of his blood, because his death is the sufficient payment for our rebellion. Think upon the amazing wonder of that statement. That is the gospel. His resurrection is the confident assurance that That we will not know the wrath and the fury of this king that we deserve because it is finished. He has absorbed it all. There is no wrath left for rebellious citizens because their rebellion has been paid for by their righteous king upon bowing the knee, upon confessing, upon looking to Christ. And so that causes us to pray then with Paul, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Whatever the opposition to Christ, whatever the opposition to God's rule may be, it can never nullify, erode, or undo God's purpose. Christ will have his people and he will reign in righteousness. Be encouraged, church. It is not an if, it is a when. And I wonder, as you hear these words even this morning, even if you've heard them thousands of times before in your life, are you allowing the pessimism of world events to affect you? Or are you hanging your hope upon the assurance of Christ's kingdom that he will prevail in every nation? Christ assures us he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. That is our confident assurance. So it's for good reason that Psalm 2 is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. Because the themes that are spoken of here are so central To the entire emphasis of the New Testament. If you want to understand your Bible, you must know something of Psalm 2. If you want to make sense of your life, you must know something of Psalm 2. Meditating upon the office of Christ's kingship. By that, do you know what I mean? The offices of Christ, that he is our prophet, he's our priest, he's our king. Meditating upon the office of Christ's kingship, it's such a nourishing and And soul-enriching practice to just think upon what do the scriptures say as far as Christ being my king? In fact, in the Baptist Catechism, question 29, we're given that very question and answer to help us to do that. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Answer. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies, subduing us to himself. Why would that be included? The nations rage. They plot in vain. Yet this King, upon his holy hill, he subdued me. He defends me now. He restrains and he conquers all his and my enemies. You see, this is the very testimony of every Christian because every Christian has been rescued by a conquering king out of a state of rebellion and war against him. God commands the nations to submit to his son. Let's begin with ourselves. Have we kissed the son? Have we embraced him? Have you obeyed his command to repent and believe? One day very soon, perhaps, or perhaps thousands of years from now, regardless of when, the fact is certain, Christ will return as judge. And the question that places, is placed upon us is, will he find us still holding out against him? Or will he find us, knees bowed, gladly confessing, my king, my God? If you don't know, or if you want to talk more about that, myself or any of the other pastors are here to speak with you. If you need more encouragement in that, I would encourage you to turn to a member, get time with them, and say, let's think about Christ as our king. Because this is the reality of the God that we worship. This is Psalm 2 that's been set before us. So may the Lord, by His Spirit, take up His word to bring about His will in our lives. Let's pray and ask Him to do that. Father, we are humbled to hear and to, to see the reality of not only the world that we live in, but our place within it. To know and to see, by the very conviction of your Spirit, that we are natural citizens to this rebellion that you are a king of justice, that what we deserve is the wrath and the fury that would come against such a rebellion, but we rejoice to hear that even as true as that is and damning as that announcement is, that you are equally a God and a righteous king of mercy. Lord, would you continue to overwhelm us by the simple yet profound announcement of this gospel truth? Would you continue to revive our hearts to be those who are so refreshed each time we hear of this announcement, to be those who are compelled to speak, to be sent out, to be those who recognize that we exist as your church, as, a, as an embassy of your eternal kingdom. And Lord, most importantly, would you continue to seek and to save? We pray and we plead that you would continue to have mercy, that you would subdue your people to yourself, that you would defend and rule each of us, that you would build your church, that you would strengthen her, that your will might be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray. Amen.